Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick. And hey, Robert, I've got a question for you. Hit me. Any time in your life, have you ever had the feeling that things are about to come to a very serious conclusion? And I don't mean like the meeting you're in right now. <laughs> I, I mean the world. Do, do you ever get that feeling like you're living in the end times? This has got to be the last of days. No. Um, <laughs> sometimes I feel I sometimes I wonder what if the next moment is going to be the last moment. Mm-hmm. Like, but it's always, there's always going to be some sort of, um, harbinger of destruction, right? So I don't, I, I look up into the sky and think, hey, what would it be like to see the, uh, you know, civilization busting, uh, near earth object entering the atmosphere? I think about things like that, but, uh, even then I'll have like a few more minutes to process it. It all does have to come to an end at some point. So it makes you wonder if that end is near. And in fact, I think some people have made statistical arguments that if you assume, okay, I'm a random observer, not a privileged observer, mm-hmm. uh, the, the statistical argument is that humanity's gotta be ending pretty soon. Uh, because if human, uh, if he, the human population continues to grow, yeah. That many, many more randomly selected observers will be among those born in the future than those that are living, you know, right now or have lived in the past. Huh. And so if we, uh, you assume that you are a middle of the road random observer and not one of the tail end, then humanity's got to end pretty soon. I don't, really? Huh. Because I always would think, well, if I'm not a privileged observer, why do I get to live in the end times? Like surely I'm at least Living in like the the penultimate age and not the ultimate age of man. Well, that instinct of yours is, I would say, fairly unique because it is very common for people to think that they are living in a very privileged time. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Well, no, I think I'm living in a privileged time. I mean, compared with what no, no, I, came I, before. I don't mean materially privileged. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's true, too. I think we are some of the luckiest people in I history. I mean, it's a golden Just, age of television, Joe. It, Have you seen these shows? Yeah, I, I'm assuming you're referring to the fact that we can still get quantum leap reruns every now and then. <laughs> but but yeah, it, it, we're materially privileged. But uh, But I also mean privileged in terms of I happen to be the person who's uh, of the generation that's alive when it all comes to the end. Hmm. So today's episode is going to be about the field of eschatology, which is uh, both theological and ostensibly secular, mm-hmm. but it's the study of the end of times, what what happens when there is a conclusion to it all, the either the end of the human species or a uh, very significant transition of the human species into another kind of being or a very significant transition of the human species into a very different kind of situation or station, either ushering in a, a utopia that brings happiness and prosperity for all or, a you know, an apocalyptic vision. Uh, and we can get into what these words mean in a minute, but that, that brings destruction and calamity and, uh, and, you know, road warrior kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, so much of it hinges on this feeling that you're talking about where it just it seems like something's got to give, something's got to break, something's got to change for better or worse. It it always takes me back to uh, to the Yeats poem, right? Surely the second coming is at hand. Yeah. Like, surely something is about to give. The falcon cannot hear the falconer, man. Something's right? going wrong. Yeah. 
Passionate enthusiasm among the worst, right? Passion, passionate intensity. Intensity, yes. That's even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah what's the exact line? The, uh, the, 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 the best lack all conviction yes. and the worst are filled with passionate intensity. I very often find that's true. You know, some of the, some of the best people I know with the best opinions don't speak up that often, but man, people who have bad opinions are loud as heck. <laughs> well, they don't have to worry as much about saying the wrong thing, do they? No. Well, I mean, it helps when you're never wrong. Yeah. So, uh, let's, let's, let's get into it here. Um, first of all, let's just talk a little bit about basic human utopianism. You know, I want to share a fact with you, Robert. Yeah. I always assumed that the you in the word utopia comes from the the Greek prefix meaning good, as in, uh, you know, euphoria, the mm-hmm. good feeling. Uh, but that is not actually where it comes from. So the title utopia, of course, can be traced back to Thomas More's book, Utopia, mm-hmm. the sort of fictional but also philosophical treatise on what a perfect society might look like. You could look at it as a sort of update to Plato's Republic in a way or uh, a laying out of the groundwork of, you know, how could we achieve a perfect world? And so if utopia in that sense had meant it had been the way I understood it, it would have meant good place, you know, utopia, good place. But the U is not actually EU as in good place, but it's U as in no place huh. uh, because it didn't exist. Right. Oh, OK. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So I think that's something that we should keep in mind going all forward. the more reason, I guess, that Microsoft Word is always telling me that dystopia is not a word. Oh, really? Yeah, or at least I get that. I get that correction all the time. I mean, obviously, dystopia has come to have a meaning for us. It's the opposite of utopia. It's this dissident vision of the the future, right? But eh. Well, before we get to dystopia, walk me through utopia, Robert. All right. So, and really, in defining utopia, we essentially define dystopia. Uh, human experiences, of course, you can think of it as this spark on the line, right, between uh, the expanse of the past and the expanse of the future. It's like... Uh, you know, it's like like a, a cartoon fuse to a bomb, right? And we're just sparking along. And humans have thrived in large part by their ability to perceive and mold the, that future, all right? We developed new ways of doing this, doing the things we always did, hunting, farming, crafting, as well as the ways we think about the world, cosmology, society, etc. And so we think of human existence, if we think of human existence as this spark upon the fuse of time, we judge the soon to ignite and the igniting based on the charred and flaming remnants of what preceded us. And we, we, we come to look beyond and imagine near and far futures on this very line. And uh-huh. so humans across cultures and times have sought to radically transform their existence socially, bodily, technologically, Etc. Uh, all in, as as a ways to try and and better ourselves and better the way that we live on this world. Yeah, I think that's true. And of course, if you look at the basic human project of civilization as one that tends toward creating a better life for all of us, it, it's easy to look at that and conclude: well, then a successful uh, execution of this project would end in utopia. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's kind of like the. It's it's the notion that if a city is essentially an engin- engineering uh, exercise, yeah. there should be some idealized version of the city that we are aspiring to, and then eventually we can get there. Yeah. In this case, you know, the city is not just a, a, a literal city, but the city is the model for the, you know, all things civilization. Now, I would argue, I think, that 
one reason we sense a tension here, like you might say, well, I don't expect us to ever reach utopia, but I do advocate civilization continuing to try to improve the lives of everyone for mm-hmm. as long as possible. Uh, doesn't that seem a contradiction? I, I would say that the main contradiction lies in the incoherence of the idea of perfection. Right. You can't create a perfect society because that idea doesn't make sense. There are inherent tensions in society. People want different things. And so there, there is no such thing as a perfect society for everyone. Yeah. I mean, you could make this I, more or less idealized uh, building in which people are going to live and work. But then what are you going to set the thermostat to, right? Yeah. Because some people are going to be too hot. Some people are going to be too cold. Some people want people want to wear a hoodie in the office. Some people want to sit there and sweat. Now, one way you could get out of this bind is by saying, you know, this project of continually trying to improve human civilization is going to be cut short. And it is going to be cut short by supernatural forces. Ah, so you're talking about a an apocalypse, a spiritual apocalypse. Yes, and I think it is very worth mentioning Something about the the etymology here, the word apocalypse. Now, the word apocalypse originally did not mean Mad Max. Uh, it, it originally meant an unveiling or a revelation. So, for instance, the book of Revelation in the Bible, in the New Testament, is sometimes known as the Apocalypse of John. It means the same thing, the revelation to John that mm-hmm. John wrote down. Uh, so it's Because revel- this was all a vision that he had of, yeah. of all these cryptic things that are playing out at the end of time. Exactly. So a revelation could reveal knowledge, visions, understanding, or very often predictions about the future. And I think because of association Associations with predictions about the future and the book of Revelation itself, the word apocalypse is a word that has come to be associated with end times events, uh, either the end of the world, the end of humanity or some radical change in station and the fortune of humankind. And we should go ahead and say, when you use the word apocalypse, that changes usually for the worse, right? Yeah. People don't usually say apocalypse in a positive way. Like, there will be an apocalypse and we'll, it will lead to utopia. Yeah. Which is interesting considering the fact that the, the origin of the word stems from a story that is supposedly about the, the victory, the eventual victory of all things good over all things evil, right? Yeah. There are a lot of different Christian visions of the end times and we'll talk about them in this episode today, but t- they typically involve both uh, very negative events and ultimately a perfectly positive event. But so the popular version of Apocalypse, yeah, we, we associate with kind of post-apocalyptic movies. Again, The Road Warrior, yeah. perfect example, great movie. Human civilization, as we formerly know it, has ended and everything has just gone to hell. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Right. Yeah. And you need gasoline. <laughs> so it's also worth stressing here that plenty of religions do not depend on such a linear time frame. Right. And instead have a, a cyclical one. Certainly we see this in the older religions, the pre-Christian religions. Uh, plenty of religions are more concerned with cosmological origins underlying everyday reality and less of any notion on ending. So, for, in, if for, exa- for example, in Hinduism, the universe is continually created, preserved, destroyed, and created again. It's an endless cycle. Mm-hmm. And the process of creation moves in these large overarching cycles, and each cycle has four great... Uh, um, epochs of time. The concept of reincarnation works alongside this as life flows into life flows into life. I like this because it mirrors some different hypotheses about the ultimate nature of the universe. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, we don't know yet what the ultimate nature of the universe is, but there are some cosmological models in which 
for example, our local universe uh, may, may be a bouncing universe where it uh, it collapses into a singularity and then re-explodes back into a universe with distributed matter and energy all over the place. Or I you meant like a bouncy house where it's it's inflated <laughs> in the morning and, and then kids it, puke in it all day. <laughs> it's scrubbed out with Clorox bleach and deflated in the evening. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like that too. Uh, but there is another apocalyptic spiritual event that I wanted to call attention to just because it's so cool. I, I can't pretend to understand it all that well because it's Norse mythology and Norse mythology, I feel like is, is a more impenetrable to the outsider type of mythology than things like Greek mythology are. Mm-hmm. Do you find that too? There's, I mean, I feel like I can get it a lot more when I, I listen to death metal. Oh, you know? okay. I think that's. That's how I tend to try and process it. Think of like extreme survivalist situations, uh-huh. uh, and the, and the, and the resulting pantheon of gods, the resulting, uh, time frame of events that would, uh, that would shape that and uh-huh. be shaped by that. Well, in, yeah, in that popular sense of apocalyptic, uh, Norse mythology has some great apocalyptic events. They, they've got Ragnarok and it's this epic eschatological battle involving gods, monsters, chaos. There's this disastrous cataclysmic wind. Winter, the mountains crumble. This giant sea serpent comes up and spits venom over all the earth and poisons the waters. And there's this huge slog down bloody battle where all, most of the gods get killed. Uh, it's brutal. Hmm. But, hey, it would be an extreme bummer of a religion that just ends with a cataclysmic disaster for everyone and has nothing positive to come of it. So, <laughs> so many religions uh, also sort of have spiritual utopias in their eschatological framework, right? The the end times will result in some kind of very positive situation for many people, at least. That's right. Now, obviously, we're going to get to uh, Christian models here in a minute. But before we get there, I want to just touch base on um, on, on some Buddhist ideas here. Uh-huh. So there's a recurring theme in, in Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, that one may escape the endless cycle of death and rebirth, uh, the wheel of samsara, and attain liberation. Right. Um, and you can interpret such liberation uh, as its as its own form of ending or perfection, even. But it's also kind of a, a for, it's a form of escape, a form of ending that can be um, acquired at any point along the line. So there's not you don't have to wait till the end times or some distant future to attain uh, liberation to reach nirvana. So it's these an are, inner journey as opposed to a physical world journey. Yeah, asynchronous timelines. Right. That being said, um there is a pretty cool um idea out there and that is the uh and belief system uh, within Buddhism uh that's a uh, uh, millennial Buddhist in particular. Uh they have this uh this character known as Maitreya. And Maitreya is the the bodhisattva, the being of enlightenment of the future, who will arrive on Earth. Generally, I've seen some numbers thrown out there, but just a, it's going to be a long time in the future. Uh-huh. <laughs> Trust me. No, Robert, you have a number on our notes. I, You've I got have, to tell us the number. Okay, I have a number, and this is a this one comes from a um, from I believe a Japanese uh, model. There's a sect of uh, Buddhist monks there uh-huh. that are uh, devoted to Maitreya, and I and I forgive me, I, I do not recall the Japanese uh, name for Maitreya off the top of my head. But it is what five billion years in the future. Am I reading that? Those are a lot of zeros. Uh, no, that would be five trillion. Five trillion. Five years. trillion six hundred and seventy billion years. Yeah. So it's uh, no wait. Uh, sixty-seven six hundred. Oh, yeah, six hundred and seventy billion years. It's a colossal number, <laughs> and it's from a, this would be this is going to be a, like a far future time when people live to incredible ages. I want to say 
80,000 years old. Mm-hmm. So huge numbers involved here. And uh, Maitreya would be the ultimate successor to our current Buddha, um, Siddhartha Gautama, Gautama Buddha. And uh, this Buddha will achieve complete enlightenment and teach pure Dharma here on Earth. Wow. And I just want to read a quick uh, quote. This is from the, the 1988 book of uh, Maitreya, The Future Buddha by Alan Sponberg. It says, quote, The prospect of a future Buddha, yet another in the long line of Buddhas, offers an attractive possibility. Although liberation from suffering is possible for anyone at any time, according to Buddhists, those being fortunate enough to live at a time when a Buddha is active in the world are far more likely to realize the arduous goal of bringing all craving to cessation. Though perhaps initially a minor figure in the early Buddhist tradition, Maitreya thus comes to represent a hope for the future, a time when all human beings could once again enjoy the spiritual and physical environment most favorable to enlightenment and the release from worldly suffering. I think that's fascinating because the the very positive uh, situation here, that the utopia that's being brought about isn't one necessarily of material fulfillment, but one of the realization of the lack of necessity for material fulfillment. Yeah. Very often when you see like a heaven or uh, ju- just any kind of very positive, spiritually imagined future situation, it, it, people people speak of material comforts. Yeah. Yeah, and indeed, this uh, this particular idea, I guess, would only entail material comforts insofar as they um, enable you to seek inner enlightenment. Yeah, and realize that you don't need material comforts. Right. Okay, so a lot of what we're going to be talking about in this episode is not just spiritual, religious, supernatural frameworks for eschatology, but actually secular and very often scientific or technological frameworks for eschatology. And there are, just like we talked about religious apocalypses and religious uh, future utopias, there are secular apocalypses and secular future utopias. Yeah, and I think the fascinating thing here, and, and, and something for everyone to keep in mind as we, we, we play with this topic here today, is that there's so much shared... Um, circuitry involved yeah. with both ideas. So, you know, it's it's easy for for a, for an atheist to stand on one side and and scoff at some of these spiritual ideas of utopia and salvation and destruction, but when you break it down, how different is the underlying experience of those ideas? How different is that from uh, some of these uh, secular ideas we're discussing now? Well, that's a good question. I think we should discuss them and explore. Well, uh, as far as secular apocalypses go, we really don't even have to to mention many of them. I mean, they're they're pretty obvious. The idea of nuclear annihilation, of global cataclysm, green goo, gray goo. Um, I don't even know if this one's a thing, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Brown goo. Who knows? Um, singularity. Um, I, I, I love, uh, R. Scott Baker's idea of a semantic apocalypse. Ooh, which one is that? Semantic apocalypse is basically just the death of meaning where we reach this point from, to where we have a certain neuroscientific understanding of, uh, the human experience and, uh, we realize that all human consciousness is a coin trick, and we explain the coin trick. Oh, it's kind of a, a Nietzschean despair. Yeah. 
Well, all of those are uh, possible things that people could predict happening. You know, so you've got green goo, gray goo, you know, people talking about uh, uh, nanotechnology or something right. that could take over the world. We don't even have that kind of nanotechnology yet, and maybe we never could. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it could just be something impossible that people are dreaming up. But on the other hand, ultimately, if we assume that our current understanding of physics is basically correct, and we think it probably is, I mean, there's a lot we don't know, but what we do know we're pretty confident about and that the laws of physics don't change with time, our scientific picture of the universe does very firmly predict one type of eschaton that is unsurvivable, right? And I want to read a a section from a book I've been reading, actually. It's a book by the physicist Sean Carroll called The Big Picture, and he's he's talking about the physical cosmological model of what's going to happen to the universe after a while. So he talks about the accelerating expansion of the universe, and that's fueled by the pull of vacuum energy, you know, the the energy out there that's causing the the galaxies to expand farther and farther apart. Uh, And that all tells us more or less what's going to happen. He writes, quote, it's possible and in some sense would be simplest for the accelerated expansion to simply continue without end. That leads to a somewhat lonely future for our universe. Right now, the night sky is alive with brightly shining stars and galaxies. That can't last forever. Stars use up their fuel and will eventually fade to black. Astronomers estimate that the last dim star will wink out around one quadrillion or 10 to the 15 years from now. Okay, that's well, that's well after the uh, age of uh, Maitreya. Yeah, good to know. Yeah, though who knows how long Maitreya lives. Just throwing that out there. Maitreya could could have something to say about these stars burning up all their fuel. But anyway, uh, Carol continues, by then other galaxies will have moved far away and our local group of galaxies will be populated by planets, dead stars and black holes. One by one, those planets and dead stars will fall into the black holes, which in turn will join into one supermassive black hole. Ultimately, as Stephen Hawking taught us, even those black holes will evaporate. After about one Google or 10 to the 100 years, all of the black holes in our observable universe will have evaporated into a thin mist of particles, which will grow more and more dilute as space continues to expand. The end result of this, our most likely scenario for the future of the universe, is nothing but cold, empty space, which will last literally forever. Well, that's um, that's nice and dark, <laughs> but, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Though, then again, it, it sounds like that mist of particles. That sounds kind of refreshing. Yeah. I mean, but also, it's you're dealing with such a long period of time here. It's kind of it's kind of like the idea of a, a humanless universe, a lifeless universe. Yeah. It's really more of just a return to normal normalcy in yeah. the universe, right? I mean, we were not around for ages and ages and ages for the vast majority of cosmological time. Yeah. So what's it matter that we're we're not going to survive in the long run either? Well, I, I'm just trying to offer an example of how you don't have to get far out into left field oh, yeah. with crazy technological predictions in order to say that at some point there will be an end. There will right. be an end point to humanity uh, that, you know, it's, it's hard to survive the energy evaporation death of the universe. Unless in a post-Maitreya 
Galileo world, we have figured out ways technologically to escape into alternate universes. So true. And those doors to alternate universes may be our salvation, but you might not have to walk through a door to reach a very different kind of world that might be much better than the one we have because there are also secular visions of utopias, right? Oh, there it, most certainly are. It doesn't have to be heaven. It can be, we can make heaven here on earth, according to some people. Yeah, I mean, uh, in, in a way, a lot of these remind me of the, the Maitreya vision, the idea that you're gonna, you're gonna have a world where people are gonna be able to find peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have various models from this. I mean, some of the ones that are more scientifically based, we have various uh, ideas about what a post-scarcity uh, society might be, transhumanist existence, um, the, 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 the essential Star Trek model of life on Earth, right? where everybody's gotten to the point where we get along, we have technology, that we have holodecks, and we have machines that will uh, just create whatever food we need on demand. New ages of human consciousness uh, and various positive spins on the technological singularity. Yeah. Now, if you don't know that much about the singularity, or even if you do, we're going to be talking about that at more length later on and how that fits into ideas of religious eschatology. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there are so many different um, secular models of utopia that are that are that are based on how we can build a better society. Um, various utopian uh, uh, cults, various utopian uh, mindsets that have been thrown out there, new political models, uh, ways of organizing ourselves, ways of building that better city that rely less on technology and more on simply the ordering of ourselves and the ordering of the inner self. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will explore the Christian rapture. All right, we're back um, to rap about the Christian rapture. I wonder if there has been any Christian hip hop that has expressly concerned itself with the rapture. I would uh, love to hear I'm about it. I'm quite sure that has happened. <laughs> well, you know, there's that Blondie song, right? No. Rapture. No, I did. is that about the rapture? No, I don't think so, but it's very weird. Huh. Is that the one? Uh, I think that's the one about the man from Mars. He's eating cars, and now he it goes out and eats guitars. Hmm. I'm not sure which uh, which part of the back book of uh, Revelation she's referring to there. The, the book of Revelation is full of wonderfully strange imagery, oh, yeah. and that would that would fit right in, actually. <laughs> uh, but okay, so the Christian rapture. I, I want to uh, put you in a scenario. You're on a plane. Okay. There may or may not be snakes on the plane. Doesn't matter. Either way, suddenly many people on the plane have disappeared, possibly including the pilot and co-pilot. But thankfully for you this time, not the pilot and co-pilot. Oh, They're, wait. Oh, is this a Langoliers thing? No, but I am describing a scene from a popular novel, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. So the people are gone where you would have normally found them uh, instead of people sitting in their seats, eating bags of peanuts, watching Terminator Genesis, uh, you find little piles of clothes. And a friend of mine, this is a funny, once actually told me that he watched a low-budget Christian apocalypse movie in which there's this this scene happens. People uh, disappear and their clothes are left behind. But he says that the clothes were not only empty, but neatly starched and folded. And in some shots, you could see that they still had price tags attached to them. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, people start screaming, wailing, where did their loved ones go? And at first it's a mystery, but then uh, it, it gradually becomes apparent that what the people who disappeared had in common was their firm belief in Jesus Christ. 
And this is this is a scene from Left Behind, a popular work of Christian eschatological fantasy fiction by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. Uh, you've probably heard of this before. I, Robert, I assume you're pretty familiar with Left Behind, right? Yes, I am familiar with uh, Left Behind, though, though I have to say I don't think it really picked up steam in uh, the church community I was a part of as like a, as a, as a kid in junior high and high school uh, yeah. student until after I was kind of, um, you know, when, after I was less active in that community, uh-huh. uh, we were we were more into uh, this present darkness by I think it was I've Frank Peretti, and the, it essentially was kind of a, it was a whole series of books that had to do with spiritual warfare. So it was more concerned with the idea that kind of a uh, a screw tape uh, scenario was always playing out all around us, and then there are angels and demons like duking it out for your mind and your oh, soul. Oh wow, yeah. So that was big. I think those came out in like eighty five initially. And Left Behind, the first Left Behind book came out in 95. So I think it, it was out, but it was just really beginning to build steam. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, so th- this scenario I've described in Left Behind, this is, it is part of a work of, of Christian fantasy fiction, but the idea is not just something that the authors dreamed up. It's been a, a popular element of Christian eschatology for many years. So where does this idea of the rapture come from? This is the rapture. People are, are, they disappear. They've been raptured up. So, I, I would say it's a complex doctrine with varying theological interpretations, but the general rapture belief is usually linked most directly to a passage in First Thessalonians chapter four, where uh, where the author of the letter, presumed to be Paul, writes. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So technically, the rapture is actually people often use the rapture as a term to signify the Christian eschaton, the, you know, the end of days. But it's actually just one event, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a moment from this whole complex system of Christian eschatology. But the idea is that upon the moment of, of the earthly return of Christ, dead Christians will be resurrected and living Christians will be r- miraculously sucked up into the sky to meet the Lord, who is presumably descending from above at the same moment. But there are some elements of Christian eschatology that match very much what we were talking about earlier with uh, the idea of uh, of apocalypses and, and utopias. So, I mean, because that sounds like an apocalypse for, for pretty much everybody. Like, that's going to end the workday. No matter right. what. No well, matter what. Yeah, it's always it's always played for horror in the the Christian apocalypse movies, mm-hmm. right? You know, people people start screaming. They don't know what's happened. It it is, uh, I guess it is assumed to be a very positive event for the people who have been raptured, but for those left on Earth, it is not a very positive event. Now, this is my own two cents, but I wonder I wonder if the the rapture narrative, as it's been popularized. Um, uh, in our current society, if it speaks uh, to a desire for a kind of public, passive, uh, aggressive rectification of faith, you know, in an age of perceived marginalization of traditional religious beliefs. So you get mm-hmm. you get liberation from a weary world with just a, a hint of a middle finger to those that uh, are left behind, who didn't, who didn't believe in what you believed and didn't have the same faith that you had, uh, which, you know, is arguably a better moral stance than fantasies of hellfire and, and, and eternal torment for those who don't uh, agree with you. But still, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't try to psycho. I'm sure everybody's got different attitudes toward it, but I, I, I'm sure for some people there is an element of that is kind of like, I'm out of here. See yeah. ya. You know, suck it. And today we're going to be focusing on what would be called Christian futurists. These are people who think biblical prophecies are going to be fulfilled sometime in the future. There are also other types of uh, people who interpret the Bible differently. There are preterists who believe that these prophecies were fulfilled during the events described in the New Testament or in the early years of the church or sometime in the past. Uh, there are also those who believe it's all a bit metaphorical, really. Uh, but th- there are very few broad concepts and distinctions in Christian futurist eschatological thinking that uh, that we can relate to in this episode. So one is this bit, the big event, the main show, the second coming of Christ. So Christians believe that, that Jesus Christ was martyred, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. And at some point after his ascension, as described in the Bible, Christ will return to earth or perhaps in some sense uh, has already returned literal or metaphorical. But in any case, he comes back and he's not here just to visit. There's some eschatological purpose to his return, and there are different views on what that is, but usually it involves some sort of uh, putting the hammer down, like there is an act of final judgment. Jesus is back, and this time it's personal. (laughs) Yeah, but then there's this concept of the tribulation. So many Christians also believe that immediately before the second coming of Christ, there will be a time of great suffering. You know, it's often described as war, persecution, hardship, hunger, pain, disease, destruction, and this very bad period, this road warrior period, as as you might uh, want to associate it, is known as the tribulation. This is your apocalyptic aspect. And in the pop culture sense of the term, it's it's about as close as Christianity gets to full road warrior. In a way, you could think of it as kind of like the fattening of the pig for 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 slaughter, right? If you think of uh, of hardship and warfare and human suffering as kind of like the fertile soil from which, f- you know, faith and especially like strong faith yeah. can emerge, then that's uh, that, that's kind of how I sometimes interpret this vision. Yeah, and I think that's actually a, a concept you see throughout uh, the theological history of Christianity. There, there's very much emphasis on hardship causing people to strengthen their their faith or their or their uh, religious character. Uh, But so where does this idea of the tribulation comes from? It it comes from the preaching of Jesus, essentially, in uh, the book of Matthew, for example. And he's talking about uh, right before the the son of man returns, he says, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So something's going to going to cut off the tribulation. What's going to happen? What will it be shortened by? Well, perhaps it is the millennium. This is another concept from Christian eschatology, and it's a period of utopian rule on Earth where Christ himself or uh, Christian goodness generally will rule over the Earth for 1000 years. So sometimes this is interpreted as a long period of time represented metaphorically by the idea of a thousand years. Sometimes it's literally a thousand years. But this comes primarily from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, in which it said that those who have been martyred for not having taken the mark of the beast on their hands or their foreheads will be resurrected and rule with Christ for a thousand years. 
Now, there are tons of different ways that you can put all these concepts together. There, there are different ideas about in what order they come. Uh, there are premillennialists who think that Christ's second coming will happen right before the millennium begins. There are postmillennialists who think that Christ's second coming and final judgment will happen at the end of the millennium. And um, there are also uh, among the premillennialists, some who think the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or that the rapture won't literally happen at all. So so there's a great diversity of opinion. I don't want to represent them as all thinking the same thing. And of course, I should also stress that there are plenty of Christians who don't really buy into any of this end times framework. You know, they're amillennialists. Right. So they're not they're not looking forward to any kind of apocalypse or utopia on Earth in any sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously it's going to vary from from sect to sect, from individual to individual. Uh, but it's, I think it's definitely hard to argue that at the, at the end of the day, does anything that occurs in like a book of revelation, does anything concerning the end times really affect your day to day that much, you know? Yeah. Um, well, still, I don't know. It might. It might. And I want to make uh, a case, actually, why some people would say that belief in the end time, whether religious or secular, uh, does actually affect the way we live our lives. Well, I guess it, it depends on when you are, you're throwing out that end time, when you're throwing out that cataclysmic event, when you're throwing out that utopia. If you think it's going to occur near enough in the future that you can actively structure your life in accordance to it. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing. Well, that that is a point that will be echoed by somebody I want to quote in a bit. Okay. Okay. So, Robert, we we've talked about utopias, apocalypses, the the end times, the eschatological views of uh, of what's coming down the road, how soon it's coming, and is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? But these ideas are not, of course, limited to religious believers, right? Right. Yeah. We've had plenty of uh, of concepts that have been thrown out there in ter- in terms of uh, you know secular utopia, even a scientific utopia. I mean, you can if you you can trace fictionalized versions. Versions of this journey all the way back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. humanity's earliest surviving piece of literature dating back to the second millennium BCE, in which our, our hero wants the secret of immortality and failing that realizes that the greatest aim is to just build a city, just build an awesome city instead. Oh, okay. And that that's even, you know, that that's also really hard work. Well, there's that project of civilization, right? Yeah. But, but even in just the Epic of Gilgamesh, we see that quest for more life. And a better system for living as a people. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I was reading a, a wonderful 2012 article uh, from James J. Hughes titled "The Politics of Transhumanism and the Techno Millennial Imagination, 1626 through 2030." Huh. Uh, and he traces transhumanism uh, and transhumanist thought back to in, to the European Enlightenment in the 1700s. Now, uh, sorry to interrupt, but you and Christian did an episode about transhumanism recently, right? Yeah, we. We may have done a couple of them now that I think about it. Um, well, it's kind of been a summer of transhumanism, uh, if you will. So we've, you know, talked, we did an episode that was devoted to just the general idea of transhumanism and some of the different sects of transhumanism that are present in the world today. But can you give us a one sentence digest? Basically that through science and technology, we can create a better expression of the human form and or human society. Yeah. So we can, we can live longer. We can live happier. We can, and this is where the the definition varies because you have, you have some people whose idea of transhumanism is far more individual based. Yeah. So it's like, Hey, some people are going to live forever and have spaceships and that's great. 
Other people are going to say, well, we're not really transhumanist unless everybody can live forever and everybody has access to spaceships and you've solved some of these other problems. So it, yeah. it gets it gets it turns into a mire rather quickly. Right. But it's the idea of transcending the human animal. And, yeah. Well, so do you want to transcend it at the species level or just modify your own body to transcend your birth nature? Yeah, it's kind of the same idea that you see with utopian models in general, where people are say, hey, this is where we are now. This is where we would like to be. And then in addition to squabbles about where you want to go, there's the inevitable problem of how you get there. Okay, but back to James Hughes. What's his argument? Okay, so he says that a lot of transhumanism dates back to the European Enlightenment of the 1700s, which allowed uh, the same uh, millennialist dreams we've discussed in religious terms, uh, these aspirations to grow, uh, to grow who we are. Uh, but in, instead of doing it on, uh, you know, based on faith, based on the on divine intervention or some other model, it's, it all has to do with reason and science and technology. So machines will free us from our labor. Medicine will rid us of disease and peace will wash across the land. It's a you know, basic enlightenment, uh, tenets there. Um, and of course, uh, some have also acknowledged that we might have, some of the, the, the enlightenment thinkers said, okay, we might have to also fight a whole bunch of awful wars. Oh, really? Get there, yeah. So we might have to go through a tribulation. Yeah, exactly. To um, get to the millennium. And, and generally the, the details of the ascension, the science of the rapture, if you will, uh, is ever varied, argued, and, and sometimes glossed over all, altogether. Yeah. Um, but uh, Hughes says, quote, it was in this stew of often uh, contradictory ideas about the nature of progress that modern techno millennialism was forged. Huh. And you have a number of uh, individuals, uh, early individuals who are getting involved in these ideas. Um, Benjamin Franklin, William Godwin uh, are just two that argued that humans would eventually conquer oppression, inequality, disease and death. Uh, um, what about Diderot? Diderot is interesting. Um, 1769 uh, in his work, uh, the Alembert's dream uh, proposed that human brains might be taken apart and then put back together, uh, that intelligent <laughs> animals and animal-human hybrids might be possible, and this one's the, the big kicker, sophisticated machines might have minds. Oh, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, <laughs> uh, because there is plenty of, uh, of artificial intelligence eschatology. Right. Now, the post-Enlightenment quest for better life, for utopia even, um, Obviously, we could spend multiple podcasts if we wanted to just talking about that. All the, the individual expressions of this, uh, of this, this, this grasping. But, uh, in short, you see a, a number of different social movements, right? You see, right. you see everything from anarchism and liberalism, social democracy, Marxist Lenin, Leninism, uh, fa- fa- fascism, etc. right? All these different models of this is what we need to do. This is how we need to reorganize ourselves, cast out the, the old, embrace the new and we're going to be better for it. And of course, none of them really worked out quite as intended, even the ones that arguably worked, right? Well, what's your beef with social democracy? No, I love social democracy, but uh let's just say that uh Oh yeah, it still, doesn't always We're work still perfectly. working out the kinks, yeah. you know. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't uh Mention eugenics, right? Sure. Which I is, mean, that's a utopian vision that's now widely regarded as a as a, an utterly bankrupt and evil idea. Yeah, it's and it's fascinating because in a post, it's like a post in a post Darwinian world, eugenics. If you strip away 
all the horrible things that came out of it. If you just like, you, basically, if you strip the meat off of the carcass of eugenics and you just look at the bones, you can say, well, that seems to make a certain amount of sense, right? Treat, you know, in basically selectively breed humanity to improve the expression of the human species. It's something that, uh, that, that sounds fine until you think about process. Right. You know, so yeah. what is the process of doing that? Well, that requires either uh, killing people who you think harbor less desirable genes mm-hmm. or not allowing them to breed or not allowing them to breed at the same rate as people who you think possess desirable genes. Also in the process is the idea of selection. Who gets to pick which genes are desirable? Some people might think, well, it's not just genes that uh, prevent certain diseases and make people live longer and stuff like that. Some people might think that certain, uh, you know, continental origins are more preferable than others. And so you get into really nasty territory. But I think what's interesting here is that eugenics is really not that different from the idea of the, the Christian rapture, right? Because in, in eugenics, it's basically this idea that selected races and gene lineages are going to be lifted up and essentially the rest are doomed. So it's an, it's an, an elevation, it's an ascension of certain models of humanity in the same way that a Christian rapture means the elevation and survival of certain very particular modes of human thought, faith, and reason. Well, yeah, this does sort of highlight that there there are very different ways of thinking about the idea of of utopia and apocalypse at the end of times. Is is it egalitarian in nature? Like, does does the d- destruction that's coming or the uh, the the great blessing that's coming apply to everyone, or does it only <laughs> apply to some? One person's utopia is another person's apocalypse, right? It could be yeah. very much, and often within the same system is now. Fast forward a bit, skip over a lot of stuff, yeah. and you kind of get to our, our can, current can we, level. Can we condemn eugenics and move on? Yeah, yeah. Having condemned eugenics and move, moving on, we, we get into another area here, uh, certainly into more of our current transhumanist ideas. And a lot of the, the fascinating uh, material that we've even discussed on the show about genetic engineering, genetic manipulation, um, that are in many ways not that different from some some of the goals and aspirations of eugenics, Mm -hmm. but achieved or potentially achieved through, you know, far less morally uh, reprehensible means. Mm -hmm. The idea of simply selecting how genes are expressed in our children, uh, creating genetically modified um, expressions that are more ideal. Okay. Without actively harming anybody okay so yeah it's essentially taking the the core nut of eugenics Mm -hmm. uh, but applying it in an individual consent level and saying we're not killing anybody or telling anybody they can't breed yeah and on top of this we have you know various other models of transhumanist uh, um, ascension right technological augmentation cyborgs virtual worlds space exploration colonization because let's remember you know a lot of the the ideas of exploration and particularly colonization of other worlds it's about the long-term survival of the human race right right and in fact uh, there's a there's a 2012 book that came out from um, uh Corey uh, Doctorow and Charles Strauss uh titled The Rapture of the Nerds which uh which I've not read uh I've heard some interesting things about it but it's, it is, in, in effect, uh, that term is referring to a transhumanist elevation of at least certain individuals and some of the problems that occur there. Yeah, well, I mean, 
I certainly, I, I don't know to what extent this makes the idea of transhumanism religious in nature. And that's something we can talk about, uh, is, you know, to what extent does a similarity to a religious idea make an idea religious? Uh, I don't know if I would say transhumanism is a religion or not. You, you might be able to make that argument. But in any case, I, I do see parallels to, for example, the idea in Christianity of resurrection bodies. You know, the idea that mm-hmm. the, the, those who are dead in Christ upon Christ's return will be resurrected in, in bodies made of like a, like a better spiritual material. Right. It sounds a lot like a transhuman body modification to me. Like you'll have your body remade in a way that will never age, will never die, will somehow still be you, but won't be that crappy body you had before. Yeah, I don't think it's so much that uh, transhumanism is religious in nature, but some of these religious models we've been discussing, they share the same energy as as transhumanism. Like there are similar uh, fears, similar aspirations about who we are and where we're going. All right, everybody, we actually have much more on this topic, uh, but we went so long, we're splitting it into two episodes. So uh, come back next time, and we will continue this discussion of, uh, of of rapture, transhumanism, utopianism, and then, of course, how we as humans deal uh, with these uh, these prophecies, both secular and spiritual, when they do not come to pass. In the meantime, reach out to us uh, on all the normal platforms. You'll find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Tumblr and Instagram. And if you want to email us, you can do so, as always, at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.